The seven trumpets are vivid pictures of God's judgment on the world. But many people have been taught today that these trumpets are something that's going to happen in the future. Today we're going to look at history and scripture side by side to see what they have to say and why it's so important for our understanding of the end times. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander. I'm your host as usual. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's actually a little cooler today in Phoenix where I live, so I'm very happy. I have a nice view out my window. And so it's finally overcast after a record, I think it was like a month, month and a half of 110 degrees outside. So pray for us that God will have mercy <laughs> with some some of our weather because it's been pretty crazy. But nonetheless, um, I'm welcoming you back to our End Time series. Thanks so much for being with me throughout the series. If you've been with me from the beginning, it's been quite the uh, adventure. This is probably the longest series that I've ever done and probably the longest series that I ever will do because these topics are just so in-depth. You know, you could really spend your entire life and work on end times events, and that's certainly not something that I want to do. But I did want to create this series because there's a lot of misinformation out in the world today, especially because we are in the end times. We're in the end of the end times, and I hope that you have learned that if anything, excuse me, especially from the last couple episodes, about the timing of where we're at. We are in the end of the end times. We've been in the end times since the cross, the last days, but this is the end of the end. And that's very important because there's a lot of very critical things that are on the horizon, like the mark of the beast, the rise of the Antichrist system, right? Well, what is that? What's that going to be? There's a lot of theories, People today are looking at Israel and, and what's happening in Israel with the Third Temple and all these things and think that that's Bible prophecy, but we've looked at that, how it's a deception. And so the question is, what is on the horizon? And if people believe a certain outcome and the Antichrist power that's on the earth is actively working to create that outcome, the, the thing that people think will happen, then what's really happening is that there will be a great deception on the earth. People will think that we have entered the millennial kingdom, the golden age, possibly even a false Christ may appear. Maybe Satan might masquerade as Jesus. That's not off the table. And we've looked at that over and over again. So today is a little bit different topic, but my point is to, sh to share with you and impress upon you the importance of knowing the truth with these things. And you do not have to know every single detail about the end times. People get lost in end time stuff. And again, that's not my thing. I don't you know, I think it's interesting. I think it's very important. But there are other things that I personally want to focus on and I'm looking forward to after this series is done because we're wrapping it up. I have, you know, maybe two or three more episodes and that's it. Still, they're very important episodes, but nonetheless, the point is to know enough to where you aren't fooled by what's coming. And the reason people are fooled, the reason people are fooled is because of dispensationalism, largely because of dispensationalism. Futurism in general, but just realizing where did these things come from and why were they created? And we've talked about that over and over again from the Counter-Reformation 500 years ago when the Catholic Church basically was identified. The Catholic system, really, the papacy, was identified as the power that the prophets Daniel and John foresaw. And there's very good reason for that. Mystery Babylon woman that sits on seven hills. There's only one place in the world that qualifies for that, and that's Rome. And we looked at other things, but the point is, 
they had to change the way people viewed the Bible, and they did so by creating futurism, which is a broad <coughs> um, way of reading scripture and times events. But basically it falls under the, the idea that everything's going to happen in the future. There's going to be a literal temple. There's literal ways of reading the Bible instead of seeing the spiritual realities. So most people believe these things. And if you're just new, if you're just joining, if you clicked on this and you're curious what the seven trumpets mean, I highly recommend that you go back to previous episodes, especially when we talked about the abomination of desolation, who is mystery Babylon, the, the four B or the several beasts in Daniel and John. All these things are so crucial to understanding where history is going, who the Antichrist power on the earth is, so that you aren't fooled. Because there are things happening, and those things are being spun to you, especially because there are so many well-meaning Christians, but nonetheless very deceived Christians, that are watchmen, 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 and watchwomen. They're all dispensationalists and teaching you about the rapture and all these things that are coming. Look at Israel. Oh my gosh, there's another Hamas rocket or there's going to be a peace deal with Turkey and this is the covenant with many and just so much misinformation because they are playing right into the hand of the Antichrist power, which is really the papacy. The papacy is in control of all these things and we looked at that with hours and hours upon documentation and evidence with scripture history, and current events. So, without getting too sidetracked and all that, I do recommend going back and seeing those things. If you haven't yet subscribed uh, to my email list for all the content that I produce, do so at danceoflife.com. That's the best way for us to stay in touch. You just never know with all these platforms, especially when you start talking about Christian things, biblical things, controversial things perhaps. You never know. But today we are talking about the seven trumpets. So we have... So far, in the last two episodes, we looked at the seven churches, prophecy. Uh, we looked at the seven seals last time, and today we're looking at the seven trumpets. We're not going to look at the seven bulls. And if you remember why, because the seven bulls are happening right after the mark of the beast. They're the final judgments that God pours out on the earth. So we're not really concerned with those, because if you if you make it alive to the mark of the beast, there's not that much time left. Christ is going to return very shortly after the mark of the beast is implemented. And how do we know that? I'm not setting times. I'm saying we, we can know that. We've been given information to know that. And how you know that is very simple. Christ said two things, a couple things actually, but he said that the returning of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. How were those days? Well, people were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. Well, why were they doing that? Or I should say, why would people in the future be doing those things when Christ returns. Well, if you compare that with Revelation, that means that they've taken the mark of the beast. Do you see how that works? The people who have taken the mark, they will be able to do those things because you can participate in society. If you haven't taken the mark, then you'll be killed or you'll be ostracized some way economically. So that's the hint number one, that his return is after the mark of the beast. Now, the other hint is that I forget the passage right now because I didn't prepare it with me, but it's the it's the idea that if the days hadn't been shortened, nobody would have been left alive. So that's kind of the other side of it. One side is the mark of the beast. That's the start point. And then there's kind of a limit that's put on that, meaning, you know, once the mark of the beast goes live, 
when Jesus returns, there will still be people left alive. Even Paul says that when he talks about the event where we're caught up. That's not the rapture. That's meeting Christ in the air. The angels are the ones gathering the elect who are still left alive. Obviously, there's going to be people left alive. So if we, if we compare all these things together with what we know about the mark of the beast and, and revelation, it's very clear that once the mark of the beast comes into play, there's not that much time. Not that much time at all, because there have to be some people left alive, and that's the point. So, we don't care about the bull judgments so much. And another reason we don't care about them, not in the sense that we don't care, but we're not worried about them. We don't need to really study them in detail, because the Israelites, the bull judgments represent a lot of the plagues that were cast on Egypt. Now, if you remember, the Israelites were kept safe from those plagues. Nobody was hurt from Israel. And that's the same thing you see in Revelation. You see people who are sealed uh, you know, 144,000 that were sealed with the, the seal of God, as in compared to, what, the mark of the beast, which is basically a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit election by the devil. And so the people who are going to be left alive, they will be kept safe from those judgments. It's not going to come on believers. There's no condemnation for the elect. So we're not worried about those judgments. We're not worried about those bulls because they're at the end of time and they're, they don't really concern us. We are concerned with the seals, the churches, and the trumpets, because they all triangulate our position in time. Now, so far, the seven churches painted a picture of history. And then we saw the seven seals that were very consistent with that same picture of these phases of the church throughout the millennial kingdom. Remember, the millennial kingdom is the period between Christ's ascension when he took the throne, sat at the right, right hand of power, fulfilled the vision in Daniel 7 of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. Okay, the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. It means he's coming from the Ascension. And he gets dominion and power and glory over all things. So that, that was the official coronation, right? Physical before the spiritual. What happened during Christ's crucifixion? That was a coronation event. Sure, it was humiliating, but it was the physical before the spiritual. He conquered death. He was basically king, right? They, they crown of thorns. They gave him the, <clears throat> the, the robe that was basically, actually, if you read the Gospels, it's, some say it's a purple robe, some say it's a red robe, a crimson robe. But they don't disagree because really what happens is red kind of degenerates into um, purple. Or I, maybe the other way around. I'm getting one of these mixed up. But the point is that it was a worn-out robe that represented blood and death and sin. So literally, he was clothed with these things, coronated. They mocked him, obviously, as king, but that was the physical before the spiritual. When he resurrected, he became clean, king of glory. He ascended to the right hand of power. And ever since then, he's been ruling. Christ is king now, while his enemies are being put under his feet. That's what the Bible says. Because when he returns, there's a resurrection. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that's it. He gives the kingdom back to the Father. Then Christ rules on earth. The whole Godhead rules through Christ on earth for eternity. That's the timeline. And so during this time of the millennial kingdom, while Christ is away from us, he's not obviously away, you know, he's away physically, but he's always there. And that's a comforting thought. But the point is he, he's given us these timetables and timelines and things so we know where we are in history. It's actually pretty profound. It's very generous of God to do that. 
And again, people who believe in preterism or futurism, one or the other, remember left or right, that's the devil's job is to get you one way or another. Either, oh, all that stuff is in the past, the Antichrist doesn't concern us, or, oh, all that stuff is in the future, it's all about the Jews and, you know, their temple and, you know, we're going to be raptured away. You see the problem with these? This is this is, has the devil's signature all over it because it's always an extreme that he pulls you to. Whereas the rational and logical way to interpret Bible events, the, the his, um, Bible prophecy, is through a historical lens. God gave all of history through these prophecies, the seven seals, the trumpets, the churches, the first beast, the two witnesses. And again, we have the end times prophetic timeline that you can download for free that I created. It's a visual outline of both Daniel and John, and you can see how they align with each other. All these prophecies, they make sense when you see them visually in a historical format because it's basically painting the picture of what's happening to believers, what's happening to unbelievers, to the Antichrist power on the earth. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, basically. The seven churches was about basically the phases of the church. The seals were kind of from the believer's perspective, seeing what happened to the message of the gospel and basically then the Reformation. Then you had, you know, other certain events that happened in history. So it's very interesting. And then the trumpets you're going to see are basically judgments. And that's what we're talking about today. And you layer all these things together you have a very profoundly detailed picture of history while Christ is ruling from heaven and putting his enemies under his feet. All these things are happening. And that's great because then we can triangulate our position. And so far we've realized that we're in the final church, right? The lukewarm church, Laodicea, that's the seventh church. Then we looked at the seven seals and we saw, okay, well, the sixth seal was already opened Quite a while ago, now some of the events towards the end of the sixth seal have not come to fruition, but we're right before the seventh seal, basically. So we're before this, so that we're in the final church, we're before the seventh seal. We know that the seventh trumpet is also the return of Christ because we looked at all those things the seventh bowl, the seventh trumpet, the seventh seal, they all fall at the same time. So if you remember, the, the seals and trumpets are throughout history. They're events and, and phases of history that happen throughout our timeline, throughout the millennial kingdom, basically, which is, again, from the ascension to the return. And then the seven bull judgments fit right into the period of time between the sixth and seventh seals, because those are right at the very end after the mark of the beast. So we're, we're coming up on this horizon. Again, I'm not setting times, but history... And prophecy has been given to us so that we can understand, okay, where are we in the grand scheme of things? And so today we're going to confirm that. We're going to see that we are in between the sixth and seventh trumpet. The sixth trumpet has sounded, and we are awaiting the seventh trumpet. That that should wake you up. If anything, with this whole end time series, just realizing like, okay, that's pretty crazy. There's a lot of things that are on the horizon. And that's a good thing, too. Because that means that this generation will probably see the return of Christ, which is very, it's a very inspiring thought because the world is going to hell in a handbasket pretty quickly. So <clears throat> together, all these three prophecies, they paint a vivid picture of this millennial kingdom. And again, you have other things like the 1260 year period of the Antichrist beast, the two witnesses, 
the woman running away from the dragon, you know, the first piece from the sea, then you have the second piece. All these things are layered on top after John creates this very rich layer of time between Christ's ascension and um, Christ's return. So he's got the, the seals, the trumpets, the church, the phases of the church, and then he goes back and recapitulates with the first piece from the sea, the woman running from the uh, the dragon, um, the two witnesses. You know, I've got all these different things, and it's it just creates this very rich view of history, which when you corroborate all of these points, and all of these have been corroborate, corroborated, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that these are historically interpreted. Not literally, like literal 1260 days, three and a half years in a Jewish temple and an antichrist that walks into the temple. I mean, these things are nonsense. They're deceptions. So I highly encourage you to go back to previous episodes if this is your first one, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. So why is this important? Because first and foremost, remember the false reading of scripture that we talked about with this futuristic, and again, I don't mean like lasers and UFOs. I mean, futurism is in everything's going to happen in the future. All this crazy stuff, like the trumpets and the seals and the antichrist walking in the temple. That's all future. Don't look at history at this as, as some of these things being already fulfilled. Right? So if your mind is aligned with that, you will be deceived very, very greatly. And we talked about why. Because the true Antichrist power had to create an alternative way of reading the Bible to take attention off of itself. Now, here's the important thing to remember, the thing to take to heart from all of this. They didn't just create a false prophecy that they, you know, tried to basically propagandize and make people believe something else so that, oh, don't don't look at us, we're not the Antichrist. They now committed to that prophecy. Do you see what, what I'm talking about here? They didn't just create an alternative view of prophecy because time is clicking away, man. Time is moving forward. So this is this is the game. They, they Everybody identified the true Antichrist, the papacy, the Catholic system that put itself between man and God. And so they panicked. Okay, we got to make a different eschatology. Let, we, let's figure out how we can re, reinterpret these end times events and make them more physical, worldly, literal, that kind of thing. So they did that. <clears throat> they promoted it. Dispensationalism was developed. All these other things came along. You know, premillennialism, postmillennialism now is very popular. They all boil down to the same thing, which is a golden age that happens after Christ's return and he has to rule on earth, you know, for, for a period of time, which basically sets you up for the Antichrist to come in and save the world and, and usher in this fleshly, physical golden age where there's still sin and death, but, you know, now we have maybe, you know, free money and, you know, med beds or whatever, right? So ultimately, we have to be very discerning because not only did they create this false prophecy, they have to fulfill it and they are fulfilling it. They're in the process of doing so. I talked about this with the third temple episode. Who do you think is behind that? Do you think it's Bible prophecy being fulfilled? The third temple was already built by Jesus. He is the temple. And if you know that, if you if your eyes are on spiritual things, then you will realize who walked into that temple and proclaimed to be God, basically proclaimed themselves to be God. It's the institution of the papacy, 
the one who sits enthroned between the cherubim, who calls himself the vicar of Christ, who calls himself Holy Father, who forgives sins when only God can forgive sins, who passes out indulgences, who has twisted the gospel and created all kinds of false doctrine. That's already happened, and it's happening. So anyway, we talked about this. It's easy to get sidetracked on these things. I really want to focus on the seven trumpets, but all these things are related, so they're very important. That's why all this stuff is, it gives you the right understanding of history and of Bible prophecy. All these things, again, when you understand them historically, they point you to the truth. If you think that they haven't happened and the trumpets are still yet to happen, then you aren't seeing what John and Jesus are trying to show you through Revelation, which is, here's the history of all history between Christ's ascension and Christ's return, so that you know who the enemy is and what they're up to. This is, this is like the fundamental thing here. And all these things point to the same reality. And again, if it's in the future, you are tied to this false way of interpreting the Bible. If it's in the past, you become complacent with end times events and say, oh, that's only concerning Jews, you know, second temple Jews is not about us. Well, isn't that convenient for the devil? Because ultimately now you're not even, it's not even on your radar to worry about the mark of the beast, which is crazy. It's crazy. Again, the devil wants to push you either to the right or to the left, but the Bible says don't swerve to the right or to the left. So we have to follow that advice. But we are in the final seal, the final church, and you will see that we're in the final trumpet. So the context for this, these these chapters are Revelation 8, 9, and 11 for the trumpets. And so far we looked at Revelation 6. We looked at, you know, there were six seals that were opened. Then in Revelation 7, it talked about the 144,000 that were sealed, protected. That's the big picture. Everything's going to be okay for the people who are elect and chosen by God. They will per- be persevered. Then Revelation 8 goes back to judgment. Revelation does this all the time. It goes, you know, God gives you the good news, the big bad boogeyman, then some more new good news, then another, you know, uh, image of, you know, scary stuff, and then again the good news. So it's constant, like, going back and forth. And this is exactly what's happening now in Revelation 8, where it goes back to judgment. But in this case, the point of these judgments are that the enemies of God will be defeated. So you've gotten the history of the church. You've got all these things that are happening. Oh my gosh, the church is, you know, you have the Antichrist power. You have, you know, the, the, the de-evolution of the church, of the message, the institutionalization of Christianity, all these crazy things that are happening. But then it's like, don't worry. Now the trumpets, you can see that God is just. He will bring justice on everything and everybody. And we see that. And we know that, God uses empires to judge previous empires. We've seen that through the beasts of Daniel, the uh, the vision of the statue, right, of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel had. All the previous empires, or all the empires were judged by the next empire. Babylon was judged by Persia. Then God brought up Greece, and Greece judged Persia. Then God brought up Rome and allowed them to prosper. And then Rome judged Greece, and then the papacy was basically the one, and Rome got taken over by um, barbarians. You know, so ultimately, there's everybody serves a purpose in God's plan. The only reason the empire ever comes to being is because God allows it. And once He's done with their purpose, He judges them because they're evil, and He He brings in another power. And so ultimately, this all continues until the very end. When what? 
Well, we know from the vision of the statue, when the stone cut by no human hands, which represents Christ, comes in and destroys this system once and for all. It judges the final iteration, Mystery Babylon, this, this worldwide system that they've been trying to build for thousands of years. And so all of that will come to an end. And the trumpets are basically sequences through time where we see that God is just. Now we know that trumpets are, so we know first off what I just said, that God uses empires to judge previous empires. So there's a precedent for that. Very abundant precedent. We're not reaching, we're not reaching for straws here. Another thing we know is that trumpets represent judgment. Now we know that from Jericho, right? Where they blew the trumpets and the walls fell down. We also know that from other things like in Judges 7 verse 16 through 18, uh, Gideon and the Midianites, and it reads, and he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hand of all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. This is verse 17. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So the trumpets are throughout scripture and they represent judgment. And of course, if you see the language here, which we're going to look at each trumpet, you'll see very clearly that these are judgment situations. So let's just jump right into it. Revelation 8 verses 6 through 7. This is the first trumpet and it goes like so. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Obviously, a lot of judgment imagery here. We can look at, for example, Ezekiel 38, verse 21 through 22, another imagery of judgment. And it says, I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many people who are with him torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So all of these things that are mentioned here in Ezekiel are images of judgment. Very clearly so. So this is talking about judgment. So we are on the right track that all these things are being, uh, you know, they're judgments upon people. And the question is, who are they judgments on? And now, if you've seen the previous episodes where we talked about the seven churches, the seven seals, right? Those are from different perspectives. Now, if you can imagine that these trumpets are from the perspective of the unbelievers, meaning the wicked, the people who need to be judged, right? Again, we're going back to the beginning, right? Beginning where the time of the first church era and going through the millennial kingdom. This is, it's like, like when you're on a typewriter, you know, you write a line and then it goes back to the beginning and write another line. And this is exactly the, the way that prophecy is unfolding. It's really fascinating. Or I should say the prophecy is recorded. John will, will go from beginning and write the whole end all the way to the return of Christ. Then, okay, back to the beginning now from a different perspective. So you have a different layer. So this is what's happening. We're going back to the beginning now. And the beginning was the beginning of the church, which is around you know, the first century, right? After Christ's crucifixion, ascension, after Pentecost, we had the first church. And the first church, again, these these are not always exactly in alignment. The point is, we're going back to the beginning, going through the phases of time. 
and what you had around that time, who needed to be judged during that time? And the, the answer is Israel. And that's why the second temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was ransacked and destroyed. And this was prophesied by Christ as well, if you recall. He warned because there would be Christians at that time in Jerusalem. So he warned people, listen, when you see the encampments around Jerusalem, get out (laughs) because they're going to come back and they're going to destroy. And that's exactly what happened. You had basically, uh, I believe around 66 AD, you had Rome surround Jerusalem. And for some reason, they decided to retreat. And in that retreat, the zealots of Jerusalem, the Jews basically chased them and killed quite a few of them. And so Rome got extremely upset And so then they sent back a horde of soldiers a couple years later, 70 AD, and totally just obliterated Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But that was the warning sign given by Christ. And of course, that's the mercy that that he choreographed in history. And of course, those things have applications to us as believers too. Remember, the physical comes before the spiritual. So if there's a physical Jerusalem that got surrounded and then there was a pullback, and then the destruction came. What does it mean that there's a spiritual Jerusalem, a body of believers, right? A church that gets surrounded by the Antichrist power. It makes a move, and then it kind of draws back a little bit before striking all the way. And we've looked at that in the Mark of the Beast. We looked at that in some other things. Again, I'm not saying exactly what that is. But if you know who the Antichrist power is, then you know what to watch for. If you're watching Israel, you don't know what to watch for, and you don't understand how to interpret these events very clearly. But other things that are important are as follows. Trees and grass often depict people, and we know that from several places. Again, if we cross-reference Isaiah 7, verse 2, it says the following, When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So, People are being compared to trees here. Later in Isaiah 55, verse 12 through 13, it says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, does that mean the trees are going to become animated and clap their hands? No, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor, and it's talking about success and victory, and this is parallelism. Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 3. The year of the Lord's favor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is what Jesus read in the synagogue and said that it was fulfilled, which is awesome. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isn't that profound that this was written hundreds of years before Christ? I mean, this is just another piece of evidence that the Bible is divine. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Right? So if you're saved and you're given a new heart and you're redeemed, you're washed, you're deemed righteous, you'll be called an oak of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So, again, trees are relating to people. Zechariah 4, verse 11 through 14. And we looked at this in the Two Witnesses episode. 
Then I said to him, what are, these, what are these two olive trees on the right hand and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So again, this is a vision. We talked about the two witnesses. They're not two real people that are going to come in Jerusalem for three literal days. The two witnesses represent the word of God. And the time period that, that the two witnesses has is 1260 years. It's the same time period as the woman running away and the first beast from the sea. They all have 1260 years. And guess what? So does Daniel. Daniel has 1260 years of the little horn power. Do you see how this works? Everybody is putting a layer on top of another layer. So again, John gives you this, this millennial kingdom timeline of these seven seals, trumpets, and churches. Then he goes back again and, and talks about the woman running from the dragon, being persecuted during that time. So you have an extra dimension of understanding of what's going on. Then he talks about the two witnesses, the word of God kind of being persecuted through this time, which it did. The, the Catholic institution banned the Bible. Nobody knew the gospel. Nobody had a relationship with the Bible, with Christ. They didn't do Bible readings. Then you had the first beast, which obviously refers to the papacy, because there's a lot of stuff there that correlates to Daniel's little horn and all the things we talked about. So all these things just keep layering on top of each other. But if you read it literally, you get so confused. Anyway, the point is this. The point is that the two witnesses in Zechariah, in Isaiah, all these sections compare trees to people. So in a vision, it's very likely very logical, very hermeneutical to, to deduce that trees mean people. So when it says that the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown down upon the earth, a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. So a lot of people were killed. Now we know, now we know that when Rome came and did what it did to Jerusalem, a lot of people died. I don't know what the official numbers are, but they crucified and destroyed a lot of people. Probably close to 30% of the population, which is an enormous amount of people. So ultimately you have to understand that this was a lot of bloodshed and it was judgment. Now some people say that this first trumpet deals with Rome. Like the first four trumpets all deal with Rome. You know, you could look at it that way. I think it's more appropriate to, to see the fact that Jerusalem was prophesied to be judged, okay, because they rejected the Messiah. And you had this huge event, the temple being destroyed, it never got rebuilt again. And, you know, a lot of people were killed and crucified. So it's very obvious that this was judgment. Because the other three trumpets we're going to look at, we're going to look at all of them, but the next three, let's put it that way, the next three definitely deal with Rome. But in this case, you had a lot of people that were killed, and this was Jerusalem's judgment for rejecting the Messiah, and very clearly so. I mean, it's very clearly so, and this was talked about even in the Talmud. We looked at, again, I don't consider the Talmud as a, an inspired source, God forbid, but it's interesting as a historical source, because even the Jews record, the people who rejected Christ, record that in the 40 years before the temple was destroyed, so before the 40, in the 40 years before this judgment occurred, upon the Jews, 
they recorded every year that their signs for the Day of the Atonement, they, they'd have these signs, you know, like um, wrapping a little red cord around a goat and it turns to white and all these different things that they kind of relied on. Because again, remember, Jews, they always left lusted after signs. And so they had these signs that basically determined, okay, are the sins of the people forgiven? And every year, for 40 years before the temple was destroyed, they record that none of those signs came through, meaning their sins weren't forgiven. Now, this is fascinating because we know that Christ was crucified in AD 31. Not AD 33, not AD 30. AD 31, and we looked at a precise timeline using Daniel's 70 weeks, how all of that checks out to the year, which again proves that all of this is to be interpreted historically, not literally. But anyway, the point is that even the Talmud records that in the 40 years before 70 AD, remember they count inclusively, meaning they count the year that they start, so 31 AD to 70 AD is exactly 40 years. Isn't that interesting? I think it's just so fascinating. So ultimately, to me, this is about Jerusalem. Now, the second through the fourth trumpets are from about 280. Again, these are, don't be dogmatic about these times. It's just, what do these represent? It's, it's that God is just, and he's enacting judgment on, on certain powers. And if you understand those powers, then you understand where we're at in history and who the enemy is. But from about 200 AD to about 476 AD when the fall of Rome happened. And this is trumpets two through four. So let's look at a couple of these. So trumpet number two is in Revelation eight. This is eight through nine. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now this is very interesting because a mountain always represents a kingdom or a nation. And we know that from several places, but one of them is Jeremiah 51, verse 25. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. This is about Babylon. I will stretch out my hand against you. I will roll down. I will roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. There's exactly that same imagery. What is this about? This is about Babylon, the, the mountain it was a nation, a kingdom that was just destroying the whole earth, and it's continuing to destroy the whole earth because we're still in the Babylonian kingdom. But again, judgment, what what was the judgment in Jeremiah? The judgment was you're going to be turned into a burnt mountain. And that's exactly what's happening here. Remember also Nebuchadnezzar's vision that Christ comes at the end of this series of iterations of Babylon destroys this system, destroys the statue, the rock that was cut by no human hands, and what happens? He becomes a mountain, becomes like a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. We're not talking about the millennial kingdom. We're talking about an eternal kingdom of Christ ruling on earth for eternity, the Godhead ruling through Christ on earth as it was always meant to be for all of eternity. And so it's very interesting that these imageries, again, people are reading this and saying, oh my gosh, is it going to be I forget the name of this island right now. There's some island off the coast of um, Spain and everybody's saying, oh, look, they're planning earthquakes and it's going to be that prophecy. It's going to be the second trumpet. The second trumpet already happened. Do you see how the devil is always trying to put your attention on physical things so that you don't realize the sequence of events and where you are in history so that he can control the narrative? This is, I mean, it's, it's brilliantly evil, but if you have discernment, 
you see right through it. The second trumpet already happened. The mountain was Rome. And, of course, we know that because it was right after the first trumpet. The first trumpet was around the first century. And then starting around, you know, like uh, the second century, you had, you know, just Rome just basically corrupting itself and losing its values, starting to be invaded and attacked, you know, infighting, civil war, all kinds of stuff that were happening in Rome. And they basically degenerated. And it says that it was plunged into the sea. Now, if you remember from other places, the sea represents people and multitudes, right? So the, the sea represents populous and chaotic areas with a lot of people. When it says the first beast came from the sea, it gives you an idea of where in the world that came from. When the second beast comes from the earth, it came from a non-populated area. And we looked at that, how the United States basically arose from a relatively unimportant politically area. I mean, there were people in North America, but it wasn't like a world power. Whereas Europe and that whole area was a world power because of Rome. And so ultimately, when the Burn Mountain plunges into the sea, what does it do? It goes back into this chaos of people scattered. It was scattered all over the place. It was invaded by barbarians. It was, you know, ransacked. People fled. People came in. I mean, it was just a mishmash of the sea, right? Going into the sea. It's a very good metaphor. And of course, the ships are destroyed too, and ships always represent economy. Rome's economy was plundered, and they were basically just destroyed throughout the course of these 200 or so years, starting in the second century. We also know even the word vandalism comes from the Vandals, which was a group of barbarians that burned Rome to the ground. So that's a little piece of trivia for you. But in 8455, that's when the sack of Rome happened and the Vandals burned it down. And the mountain was basically plunged into the sea. So the thing to get with all these things is that don't be dogmatic about the time. Like, oh, it was this exact date that this trumpet happened. These are sequences of events. These are phases of time. It's much more complex and nuanced than that. Of course, you have the third trumpet. So put all these together. You had the second trumpet, the mountain, of course, represents a kingdom. Burnt mountain, it's judged. Uh, the third trumpet, verse 10 through 11, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the spring of water. The, ma- the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made Bitter. Now, this is all very, very important. And again, there's a lot of things that if you don't understand how to reference Scripture with Scripture, if you don't understand maybe some other basic teachings like biblical cosmology, you will get swept away in whatever they're going to try to pull off to make people think that this has been fulfilled, like today. This has been fulfilled a long time ago. But let's, let's get some context. Stars in general relate to people, but a great star is relating to a leader. Somebody who's, you know, in charge of stuff. And we know that from several other places where there's a precedent. Revelation 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So stars, in this case, are angels. And they they are sometimes believers in Daniel. We looked at that. Like the little horn causes the stars to be trotted on and and fall to the ground. Uh, They sometimes represent the angels. Right, like in this case, and you we also have leadership roles. Like Christ is called the morning star. 
Revelation 22, verse 16, I, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Who's the bright morning star? It's Jesus. So that that typifies or represents Christ. It's a leadership position when you have a great star. Of course, also in Genesis 37, now going back to the past, 9 through 10, we have Joseph's dream. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Is this a literal interpretation or is it figurative? No, of course, it's, it's a figurative. Verse 10, But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So do you understand what happened here? He dreamed, a, he dreamed a dream of the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him. Now, there was 11 stars, so I don't know if you caught that, because he had 11 brothers. There's 12 tribes of Israel. So his parents interpreted that as, obviously, the sun and the moon were, what's the sun? Sun is like the main light in the sky. So in this case, the sun is the dad. He's the father. He's the patriarch. The moon is the mother. And then the stars were the brothers. Do you see how this works? So the stars are representative of people, of leaders, angels. It just depends what it is. Context determines the meaning. So we have to use context. So now, obviously, a star is not... So here's my point. Here's the first point. Okay. Obviously, it's not talking about a meteor coming through and all this stuff that you see in Hollywood movies with the apocalypse and a giant comet hitting the earth. Oh my gosh, you know, we're going to all die. This is nonsense because first and foremost, if you believe in a biblical orientation of the earth, that's impossible. There's no comets that will ever hit the earth unless God decides to send one, but that doesn't seem to be the case in history, nor does it seem to be the case in the future. This is talking about something spiritual and political that happened as judgment in the past. So remember that all this talk of UFOs, of comets, of asteroids, of aliens, it's all nonsense. If you understand what the Bible says about the earth, and I'm not going to get into it today, possibly at some point in the future, then you realize there's nothing to be afraid of. These are false interpretations. So that's number one. Number two is that the star is called Wormwood. Now, it's a great star, so it's a leader. And we know that Wormwood also has certain prophetic significances. Because in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, it's associated to idolatry. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord or our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now, this is the ESV. In the KJV, it says, Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. So what is, what is the point here? If you are a root that is bitter, as in wormwood, you're an idolater. You are somebody that is basically worshiping other gods. So bitterness and wormwood is associated to idolatry. So we have a couple of very interesting things here. Now we know during the time that Rome was falling, there were several judgments on Rome. The first three trumpets, or this two through four, are all about Rome. We talked about the second trumpet, the mountain being burned down, basically, and that was true. Rome got burned to the ground. 
now you're taught now there's another picture this is, this is a great star came to the ground and made all the the waters bitter there's a lot of bitterness with this great star well great star is a leader and we know that leader was Attila the Hun Attila the Hun had a very short period of time about 15 years 20 years or so where he just brutally destroyed Rome he ransacked Rome it was a bitter defeat for the Romans and it was it was a very bitter thing they called him literally the scourge of God so even though Rome was pagan they attributed the bitterness of Attila the Hun and the, the losses they faced to like literally like okay we're being scourged by God now isn't that ironic how Romans scourged God in the flesh and they called Attila the Hun the scourge of God it was their judgment for you know, just being an idolatrous nation. Of course, again, bitterness is associated to idolatry. Wormwood. So not only was it a bitter defeat, but it was for the bitterness of their idolatry. And it was, a, you know, Roman was a pagan pagan nation, pagan empire with bitter fruit. So they were judged. They were judged. And basically that was the, the third trumpet is about Attila the Hunt. And that can be seen in history very clearly. Attila was from about 434 to 453 AD. Now the fourth trumpet is darkness. And again, the fourth trumpet is the last trumpet dealing with Rome. There's a lot of trumpets that deal with Rome. And let's read it. Verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars. Remember Joseph's dream here? So just keep that in mind. So that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Again, sun, moon, and stars represent people, in this case, leaders, right? Remember Joseph's dream. In 476 AD, you had the fall of the Western Roman Empire. They were scattered into separate nations. Remember, the mountain fell into the sea. It burned down, and it was scattered. They they scattered into different tribes and nations and basically, you know, lost their power. We also know that Romulus Augustus, who was the emperor at the time, was deposed, which basically officially ended the Roman Empire, and that's when the Pope began to rise. The Little Horn Power began to dominate. And of course, we looked at how the Little Horn Power plucked up three of these groups, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Remember, the Little Horn plucks up three kings before he actually takes power, and that happened in history. By 538 AD, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals who had taken over Rome were themselves also taken over and basically eliminated. And the Pope was made supreme authority over church and state. And so that's very interesting history. Again, so, so interesting, but the sun, moon, and the stars are leaders. And so let's come. So what is darkness? Well, they got eliminated. A third of the leader, the most of the leadership, or I say a, a good part of the leadership got eliminated. The emperor was deposed there was a lot of political things happening in, in the leadership of Rome. The Western Roman Empire basically was crumbling. I mean, it crumbled into just a bunch of nation states, which they themselves were very volatile. Now, compare this now to get an extra perspective. Compare this to the fourth church. Remember, all these things fall in alignment with one another, relatively speaking. Around this time, you had the fourth church. Remember, the fourth church was from about the fourth century. That's when Thyatira began all the way to the Reformation. That was, the, that was probably the largest phase of the church. That was the Dark Ages church. You had the Apostolic church. 
You had the persecuted church. Then you had the compromised church from about 313 AD to, uh, you know, I, I forget when, some, you know, 538 AD, I believe. But that's basically that 200-year period of time where there's so much going on with the Roman Empire, with things changing around, with Christianity being, you know, they were persecuted, but then they weren't persecuted. They got integrated. A lot of stuff was going on. That period of time was compromise. Things were getting compromised. Remember the rider with the scales? They're compromising. And so by the time you had the fourth church, where you had 538 AD, the little horn took power. All this matches incredibly well. I mean, it's you have to really deny a lot of history to, to say that this doesn't match because everything we're talking about is corroborated by history to, to the letter. Again, the little horn plucks up three kings that happened with the papacy during the period of 476 AD to 538. Around that time, you also had the fourth church, which was revealed by also the fourth seal. The fourth seal was what? A rider on a pale horse that was death. The opposite of what you saw in the very beginning with the apostolic church, with the rider that was full of life, had a bow, you know, a crown, all these things representing a pure message of Christ. And by the time you got to the fourth church, which was the church-state union, the institutionalized church, the Dark Ages church, the first beast, which ruled, you know, with an iron fist, you had basically death. No more scripture. There was, everything was in Latin. It was the Roman counterfeit of Christianity. And so all of this is context because you have basically darkness as part of the darkness is that these sun, moon, and stars were eliminated. So this is true. A lot of political, tumultuous political changes were happening in the Roman Empire. The leaders were being killed left and right. Then you got a new leader, then another one was being killed. So a lot of lot was going on. But then you also had spiritual darkness. Which also we can see a precedent for in Micah verse uh, chapter three verse six. Therefore, it shall be a night to you, without vision and darkness to you, without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. What is God saying here? He's going to create a spiritual darkness. Nobody's going to be able to tell the future or inquire of God or do anything. They're all going to be confused because God's the one who controls that. God who God is the one who allows anything to happen. So you have now also another layer, which is spiritual darkness. And again, this relates to the Dark Ages Church, which aligns perfectly in sequence. Around this time, when Rome was fluctuating and being judged, again, 200 to 476 AD, you saw the compromised church. And finally, you had the papacy, which began around 538 AD shortly after the Roman Empire basically collapsed, and you had spiritual darkness, the fourth church, the, the rider on a pale horse whose name was Death. All these things come together. It's really fascinating. But the Dark Ages church kept crucifying Christ. They were cursed, and of course, because that, because of the spiritual darkness that they had, they were cursed with darkness. It's called the Dark Ages for a reason. Now, some people will say, well, what about Tartaria? And, you know, it's actually been an inversion. We had a glorious... I mean, look, those are conspiracy theories. I'm not going to get into that. There is definitely some evidence that history is not what we've been told. Absolutely. So if you haven't heard of the Tartaria thing, I'm not even going to it. If you have, then you know what I'm talking about. History, for sure, is not what we've been told. However, there's nuance in everything. 
We can't be so extreme in our thinking that we, we suddenly think, oh, there. Some people even believe that a millennial kingdom already happened. And that's what's being hidden as the dark ages. It's being inverted. So actually it was a millennial kingdom. And then, well, what does that mean for us living today in, in this horrible world? doesn't make any sense with the Bible. So ultimately you have to scrutinize these things. But the point is this, they were cursed with darkness, both spiritually, politically, and even, you know, physically. I mean, it was a dark age. It was a very dark time in many ways. But those are the first four trumpets. First one had to deal with Jerusalem. And then the next three had to deal with Rome. And by the time that one's over, you're looking at now the fifth century. And in verse 13 of chapter 8, you, you start to learn about these three woes, which are also another thing to keep track of. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So basically, you have these three woes, and the last woe coincides with the last trumpet, the last seal, the last bowl. It's, again, everything kind of, there's different rates that these things are going, but the last one of each thing all aligns, and it's the final final event. This is when Christ returns, and the wicked are destroyed forever. And so ultimately, these are just another thing that's happening throughout time. And we'll see that. Now we have the fifth and the sixth trumpet. And these are pretty interesting. They're interesting because they deal with Islam. Now I mentioned this in the episode on Islam several episodes ago. And so now we're going to talk about it because this is a little more in depth. You have Islam kind of came up in the seventh century. So 600 ish AD, 610. And there was a lot going on with Islam. Islam's been a world power in its own sense, religiously, militarily, and it's had its fluctuations. It, it spread, and then it had the Ottoman Empire, and then the Ottoman Empire basically was judged. And so you had a very complex history that came into play, but there's a reason. It's all, again, if you understand all of history, of how God uses, he raises an empire up, then he raises up another one to judge the previous one, and at the end, he's going to judge them all. But the point is that Islam, if you recall, was created by who? Who was Islam created by? Islam was created by the Catholic Church. They needed an army for the Middle East because the Middle East had a lot of genuine Christians because of Paul's missions. Christians who didn't care, they knew the truth, they weren't going to submit to some worldly power. They had genuine faith. And so they needed an army to conquer the Middle East and eventually to conquer Jerusalem. But Islam got out of hand, and so that was the judgment on the papacy. They had to militarize. They almost lost Europe to Islam. That's why they had the Crusades, and the Crusades eventually pushed them back, but it was judgment on the papacy. So if you understand the relationship between Catholicism and Islam and the history, how Muhammad was propped up by Catholic people, Catholic agents, all the people around him were either ex-Catholics or former Catholics or Catholic insiders, nuns. You look at the, the similarities between Catholicism and Islam. It's really pretty crazy. So if, you, if this is news to you, if you're a Muslim or if you don't have Muslim friends, check out the previous episode on the role of Islam in the end times. It'll be very eye-opening and you will see that Islam is a false religion. And I hate to say that if it's insulting to anybody, but look, 
religion in general is false. Religion was warned to us by the prophets, and Christ did not come to establish a religion. Man has been religious his entire existence. Religion is what separates us from God. Of course, it's also sin, but religion is an extension of sin. It's just religion is a way that man is trying to worship God in his own way, rather than having a true and genuine relationship on God's terms. So any religion is a false religion. Christianity is not a religion, it is a way of life. That's why it was called the way. For first hundred years, it was called the way. So anyway, I digress. Fifth and sixth trumpets. Let's check them out. So Revelation 9, this is now in Revelation 9, and they are much more robust. There's a lot to talk about here. So let's let's read them from verse 1 through 12, and then we're going to break them down line by line. Verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. So by now you should understand that this is talking about a person. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. When from the smoke came locusts on the earth, then from the smoke came locusts, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or green plant or any tree. Again, similar imagery we've seen before. But only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Very interesting. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. So we have a time prophecy. Very interesting. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Again, there's a time prophecy, very important. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So first woe is in alignment with the sixth trumpet. So no need to get crazy about trying to keep track of them all. It's basically the sixth trumpet. So you have a lot going on in here. And again, this is talking about Islam, and you will see exactly why it's talking about Islam. The great star was Muhammad. We know that. He was a great leader, right? He he militarized a lot of people. He left a false religion on the earth. He left a legacy. Now there's a billion people in Islam. So he's a great star. Now the bottomless pit, again, so very important. People will read this trumpet, and they're connecting it to things like CERN, and demons coming out that are going to be like locusts and it's going to be some aliens type of thing. This is not at all what this is talking about because again, the devil is moving your eyes and attention to physical things so that you can be afraid. And when you're in that trauma response, you're not thinking critically about the spiritual power of the enemy. You're thinking about aliens coming out of some multidimensional pit that CERN is going to open and, you know, They're going to kill people for five months. It's not what this is talking about at all, because this is a vision. If we're going to interpret this literally, 
then you might as well say, well, there should be a red dragon flying around the end times and there's going to be a giant angel with a ball and chain that's going to catch him and put him into a pit. And there's going to be a woman running away from a red dragon. All these things should be interpreted literally if you're going to interpret this literally. Do you see the problem? This is a vision. John saw things that represent greater truths. Much simpler than writing everything down detail by detail. You wouldn't even understand what he was writing down. But he was given a visual representation of things that would happen. So we have to decode that. We have to understand what these things represent. Now we know that the bottomless pit is a void. It's a desolate waste. It's a place that's empty. Okay? The great star came from where? From Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was a pretty desolate place that basically didn't have much going on for it. But that's where the the great star landed. It was there. It started his his empire, his, you know, his religion was started in Saudi Arabia. It was a desert. That's where the uh, where Muhammad arose from. Now, we also know that smoke is com- compared to the prayers of the saints. We know that smoke represents the prayers of the saints many times in Revelation. So now, put it together. If there's a great star, came out of basically nowhere, an emptiness place, a very desolate place, and the key was given to him to open the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from that place, from Saudi Arabia, arose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. Smoke represents prayers and incense. But in this case, it's coming from a very negative place. It's a satanic spiritual thing that's happening. And that satanic spiritual activity, religious activity, is so dark that it clouds the sun. And basically the air was darkened because of these satanic spiritual activities. And was that true? Of course it's true. Islam is a false religion, and we'll look over and over to why that's the case, but we looked at it in the Islam, the importance of Islam episode, how it's influenced by Catholicism. It's based on Allah, and Allah is a name for Satan, and if that's news to you, then I highly recommend you go check that out. It has secret societies. All these things are the same stuff as the Vatican and the Catholic Church. They're two sides of the same coin, dark and light, and those sides will unite at some point in the future, but The smoke represents this satanic spiritual activity. Now, we know that there's a lot of influence of Christianity on Islam. I talked about that in the um, meaning or role of Islam in the end times. So go check that out because there's a lot of proof. We talked about how Khadija was basically Catholic. His right-hand man was Catholic. His sponsors were Catholic. Everybody around him was Catholic. Many similarities between the two religions. And there was a reason and a motive for Catholicism to bring up their own sort of little pawns that they wanted. They thought they were going to be pawns, but then they became their own power and they judged the papacy. So the locusts, (laughs) the locusts are not aliens by any means. Futurists and dispensationalists believe that this is some sort of alien army that's released at the end times after the rapture, of course. But these are literal things. Look, in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, let's use scripture to interpret scripture. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. So who sent the army? God, to judge them. What is the army being compared to? The locust, the swarming locust. 
So if we have this straight from the mouth of God, that the army who pillaged Israel and judged them was sent by God as judgment. So we have a judgment situation. We know the trumpets are about judgment. Who are they judgment on? Unbelievers, the pagan empires. In this case, the papacy. The papacy is a pagan, neo-pagan religion. And it's being judged by an army that is resembled by locusts. Why? Because they spread really fast and they pillage everything they find, just like real locusts. Revelation 9, verse 3 says the same thing. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of Scorpius. So let's look at this in detail. There's a uh, map that I want to show you. And it's a great map. This is the desert locust in Africa and Western Asia. Complexity of war, politics, prelates, terrain, development. So this is actually the territory of the desert locust. Now, if you are listening to this, you can look it up. Distribution of the locust or the desert locust. And you can see the distribution. Now, look at the distribution of the Islamic empire, the growth and spread of Islam. They are practically the same exact Thing. Now, of course, there's different times that uh, Islam expanded. Of course, in the first couple years, it was Muhammad in Saudi Arabia. Then you had different expansions, and it went out like the locusts. Look at the map of the locusts, and look at the map of the spread of Islam. They are basically the same thing. So the important thing to keep in mind here is that this is all metaphorical. The locusts represent the army that Islam raised up and basically conquered the entire part of the world in northern Africa, in southeast, you know, in the Middle East, basically in Southeast Asia or Southwest Asia, I guess. Asia, I'm thinking Asia, like Asia Minor, that whole area. But basically, same thing as the locusts, and they spread very quickly. Now, verse 4 tells us, don't harm the trees. Remember, the trees are people. So what does that mean? Well, the locusts were not to harm those that were commandment-keeping faithful Christians. Doesn't mean you're saved by keeping the commandments, but they were faithful, remnant, elect people that were sealed by the seal of God who the locusts were not allowed to harm. Who doesn't allow them? God. Remember, God sent the locusts in Joel, and God heals from the locusts. Who is sending the judgment upon the papacy in this case? Who's sending the locusts? God is bringing up the locusts. He's bringing up this entire empire of Islam to judge the papacy for their mischief and for their evil. So, but they're not allowed to harm the trees, which is very important because we know from the Islamic law and their rules of war that they did not harm the Christians. They actually just allowed them to pay tribute and they wouldn't kill them. Contrary to, to common belief, probably. But they didn't destroy property wantonly. They didn't kill Christians or Jews as long as they agreed to pay tribute. And we look at that from uh, the Islamic law and the rules of war. This is from like a nonprofit article type of website, but you can read about all of it here. It says, in a famous decree, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, the first caliph, told his military commander, Stop, O people, that I may give you ten rules for guidance on the battlefield. Do not commit treachery or deviate from the right path. You must not mutilate dead bodies. Do not kill a woman, a child, or an aged man. Do not cut down fruitful trees. Isn't that interesting? Do not destroy inhabited areas. Do not slaughter any of the enemy's sheep, 
cow, camel, except for food. Do not burn date palms, nor inundate them. Do not embezzle. Uh, no misappropriation of booty or spoils of war, nor be guilty of cowardliness. You are likely to pass by people who have devoted their lives to monastic services. Leave them alone. Very interesting, isn't it? Again, if you know your history, all this stuff is confirmed. So what's going on here? The locusts aren't allowed to harm the trees. Well, yeah, the, the Muslim rules of war at the time were actually very decent rules of war. They didn't pillage people wantonly. They didn't destroy women and children in farmland. As long as, listen, you pay tribute, then, you know, we'll leave you alone. If you're in a monastery, if you're devout people, you can do your thing. We're not going to, you know, kill you or whatever, extort you. So very interesting. Now, we know that they did a, they did attack relentlessly the Roman Empire, what was left of it, and in Constantinople. And all these things were judgment on these previous empires. And you'll, as you'll see also on Rome and the papacy, for just being pagan, having idolatry, compromising the church, persecuting Christians, all the things we talked about in previous episodes, this is the judgment was from Islam for these trumpets. Now, we have a time prophecy in this sixth trumpet, which again, or this is the fifth trumpet, sorry, uh, which was for five months. They were allowed to torment for five months. We read that in Revelation 5, verse 6. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. So, if we're consistent with interpreting end times events day-to-year principle, which we have seen works out every single time, what does this actually mean? It's not five literal months. It's 150 days, 30 times five. 150 days is actually 150 years. So these, you know, locusts that were spreading were allowed, they had a period of 150 years that they had to torment their victims. Now we know that in 1299 AD, the Battle of Baphium, the Turks began a persistent assault on the Eastern Roman Empire. So the West had already been judged. They already, you know, remember Rome fell and everything. So the Eastern Roman Empire was still there until several centuries afterward, but this is now their judgment. And again, 1299, the Battle of Baphium, that's spelled B-A-P-H-E-U-M. The Turks began to, who were Muslim, began like a persistent assault on the Eastern Roman Empire. And 150 years exactly to the day, the Byzantine Empire became a vassal state. That's in 1449. They basically became subordinate to the Ottoman Empire, which is very fascinating history because with the Byzantine Empire out of the way, the Ottoman Empire could now focus on the papacy. You see, the, the Byzantine, I don't know if you know, you're familiar with your geography, but the Byzantine Empire was where Asia Minor was. Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, Asia Minor. So it's the eastern side of the Roman Empire. Now with that out of the way, as being a, basically a province for the Islamic Empire, the Ottoman Empire, now the papacy was SOL. They're, they're right in the eye of the target of the Ottoman Empire, and this is why you had a lot of very important things. The Islamic wars with the Ottoman Empire, which distracted the papacy because they had the Crusades, they had all these different you know political issues they had to deal with, that actually helped the Reformation survive. Very fascinating, which ties into all the other things we talked about with the phases of the church and things like that. If the papacy wasn't distracted by their 
you know, the things that they tried to create, which was an army for themselves, but then it backfired, the Reformation probably would not have gotten off the ground. Do you see how that works? Very fascinating. God uses everything in a profoundly uh, poetic way. So, again, the five-month thing checks out with history. Very plain, very easy to find in history. 150 years is basically when the Eastern Roman Empire finally fell. They were tormented. I mean, again, imagine being assaulted every day. People wanted to die, but they couldn't find death. They're just being tormented by this constant assault, and eventually they became subordinate. Now, the final part of this fifth trumpet is the appearance of the locusts. And again, in the, in the world we live in that is deceived by dispensationalism and futurism and sci-fi movies and conspiracy theories, now look, I'm not saying CERN isn't doing some satanic stuff. There's definitely a lot to believe that they're trying to contact demons and fallen angels and who knows what they're doing. But the idea that there's going to be a massive pit opened and alien creatures are going to come out and torment people for five months is not what the Bible is warning you about. It is showing you that God is just by showing you historical things that happen so you know where you are in history. The appearance of the locusts is also a metaphor. It's things that tell you who are these people? Who can we appropriate this to? How do we identify them? We know that the cavalry of the Turkish army, what do they do? They had long hair. <laughs> they were super fast. They were known for their speed. The Turks were viciously fast, especially their horses were of a particular breed that were exceptionally fast. They're very aggressive, very light. They didn't carry heavy armor like the Crusaders. They were very quick, had sharp swords, and just very nimble. And, of course, the wings on these creatures represent speed. And the lion attributes, the teeth of a lion, represents aggression. This is all very consistent with what we know about the Turkish army. Now, we also know that the beast in Daniel, when he talked about the beast, the leopard with wings... If you recall, the leopard had four wings. What beast was that? That was Greece. That was Alexander the Great. In 10 years, he conquered the known world. Imagine the speed of, you know, of your army that you have to have to conquer the known world in 10 years. It was fascinating. But that's why Daniel saw Greece as a leopard, a very fast creature with wings on top of the fact that it's a leopard. So that gives you an idea as to what locusts with wings represent. It's not an alien creature. You have to get your eyes out of the physical world and rather see spiritual things, which is basically that this is talking about the Turkish army. Now, it says that they had a power over them. It was Abaddon and the Greek name Apollyon. Now, we talked about this in the role of Islam in the End Times episode, very much about the history of Islam, about the name Allah, how it comes from Al-Ilah, which is the God, i.e. the God of many names, i.e. Satan. Satan was masquerading as the moon god and the sun god and all these different things in history. And Allah is not the biblical God. It is Satan masquerading as God. And so ultimately, it is a satanic power. I mean, look at Islam today. Most people who are just regular Muslims don't know this because they've been indoctrinated, just like most people who are Catholic don't realize that the beast that John and Daniel prophesied is the papacy, is the Catholic Church. But you have to learn your history and you have to learn 
what you are paying worship to when you spiral around a black cube. Where does that come from? What does the name Allah mean? Who is Allah? You have to know these things. And again, uh, we talked about it in great detail, very great detail, all the pagan stuff, all the Freemasonic occult stuff, the history of Islam, go look into it. But that explains the power that was over this army. Yes, they didn't harm the trees, but there was a satanic power. Muhammad was a false prophet. He was being guided by the devil to create a false religion. And ultimately, God used that false religion that the Catholic beast started to judge the beast. See how that works? He used it for the good. He judged them. And then, of course, the Ottoman Empire was judged too, which we'll look at in the sixth and, uh, well, it's not the final trumpet, but the, the sixth trumpet. We'll see how the Ottoman Empire was basically judged. But that's what it means when it says it had a power over them named Abaddon. It's not some giant demon that's going to come out of a pit. It is the fact that this power is satanic in nature. Even you see all these terrorist groups today like Hamas and ISIS and all stuff. They are, this is Satan's army. It's just a different flavor. Rome was Satan's army. The Greeks were all pagans. They were Satan's army. But God used it all against other, you know, previously satanic powers to constantly judge one and the other. So it's very interesting if you know your history. So now the sixth trumpet, which is basically the, the second to last trumpet, we're, we're waiting for the seventh trumpet. We've now gone through the fifth trumpet. The sixth trumpet is from approximately the 1400s, 1449, after the Byzantine Empire fell, to about 1840, where the Ottoman Empire fell. So we're going to look at that. So let's read it from verse 12 to verse 21. This is Revelation 9. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying, to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Another verse that is hotly, hotly uh, debated and misinterpreted today. Verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. So 200 million. I heard their number. And this was, this, this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the, there you go, the same imagery, by the way, is the, the locusts. We'll talk about this in a second. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Very interesting imagery. Again, remember, if you're a second temple Jew and you have no idea what guns or gunpowder or anything like that is. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Very interesting statement in the context of the fact that the Catholic Church is the one being judged and the one who created all these statues and icons and you know, all the kind of things. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So obviously this is a judgment situation 
And there's a lot going on here. Now, the sixth trumpet concerns the Ottoman Empire. That's kind of the final phase of judgment on Europe, on the papacy, on, you know, this post-Roman power. And it lasted shorter than it did the first trumpet, obviously, but it was also very significant. Now, the four angels, let's start with that. I want to compare it to the, the previous four angels who were holding back the four winds. So we know that this is about judgment. The four angels are personalized. They're localized. They're, they're people who are basically released to do some sort, sort of job or duty as opposed to some spiritual metaphor, right? The four angels holding back the four winds, that could be a personal thing, but it could be just a metaphor, Whereas this is a personalized thing. These angels are people, they're messengers, they're some sort of, mess- I mean, angel means messenger in Hebrew, right? Malak, I believe. And that's something we have to keep in mind, that angels doesn't mean, at least in Hebrew, didn't mean some, you know, person wearing white with wings playing a harp in heaven. That's not what angel meant. It just meant a messenger, somebody who's doing the job of someone else. In this case, it's God. But Angel is a person. It's a, it has a personal quality. And we know that the Ottoman Empire had four sultans. This was fulfilled through Aleppo, Iconium, Damascus, and Baghdad. Those are four sultans that were huge leaders of the Ottoman Empire and basically, you know, commanded all these armies to go and pillage and destroy and affect Europe. I know I grew up in Romania. I mean, I I was born there, and I know that in Romania, we had to deal with the Turks. There's a lot of history with Eastern Europe, especially. They were pillaged by the Turks. They dealt with the Turks. So it was a real problem for Europe. And of course, Europe was governed by the papacy for a lot of the medieval ages when this was happening. This was judgment on them. Now again, take it all in context. The day, the month, and the year, and the hour. Now, you could say that this is just being poetic, like, oh, about this very specific time. Or if we, again, use this as a timestamp, as a time prophecy, and we convert that into days that are prophetic days, meaning years, is a day, that's one year, a month, that's 30, that's 30 years, an hour, that's one uh, fourth of a year, right, plus 360. So don't worry about this math. It adds up to 391 years. That's what basically, if you go a day, a month, a year, and the hour, it all adds up to 391 years. So 391 years is basically the time that it remained for the Ottoman Empire to do its judgment work. And that's true. That's basically true. From 1449, after the Byzantine Empire crumbled and they surrendered to the Ottoman Empire, till 1840, where you had the Oriental Crisis of 1840. We'll read about that in just a second. But basically, the, the Ottoman Empire in 1840, accepted protection from four European nations, which ended its, basically, hold as this world power. So it came to an end. And 1800 to about 1920, the empire, the Ottoman Empire, was dissolving away. After the First World War, they were basically done. So judgment comes upon them as well. Of course, judgment is always coming upon everybody. But this and I, this aligns also nicely. We'll read about the Oriental Crisis in just a second. But this whole 1840 timeline, where the Ottoman Empire basically just says, "Look, we're we're not capable of defending ourselves, so we need to contract with European countries who we were attacking to help defend us." That ends their time that they were allowed to basically cast judgment, and it's very clear. 
from the time that they won over Byzantine uh, Europe or the Byzantine Empire to 1840 when they basically surrendered to Europe and needed Europe's protection to, you know, basically protect themselves. That was 391 years. And that is exactly the time period that verses 12 to 21 say, the day, the year, the month, and the hour. If you add all that up, it's 391 years. It's very fascinating. I mean, I think that the likelihood of that being by chance is very low. Another thing is that this aligns nicely with the final church. We talked about how the sixth church, Philadelphia, brotherly love, the missionary movement, you know, Bible colleges, all these things ended in the 1840s, the the second great awakening. All those things kind of ended. And then you had the final church, which began and we're in the final church, and now this sixth trumpet pretty much ends around that same time. So now we're in the seventh church, the seventh seal's already happened, and the sixth trumpet ended, and we're waiting on the seventh trumpet. You see all these things align? It's really, really quite fascinating. But let's read a little bit about the Oriental Crisis. The Oriental Crisis of 1840 was an episode in the Egyptian-Ottoman War in the Eastern Mediterranean triggered by the self-declared Khedive of Egypt and Sudan, Muhammad Ali Pasha aims to establish a personal empire in the Ottoman uh, in the Ottoman Empire, Ottoman Egypt, I should say. So they had a civil war basically broke out in this empire. As usual, one empire is brought up to judge the previous. On the verge of total collapse and defeat to Muhammad Ali, an alliance of European powers comprising Britain, the Austrian Empire, Prussia, and Russia decided to intervene on behalf of the young Sultan Abdul Med. So basically, this is 1840 is the... The, the, the Ottoman Empire was just like Rome. The Ottoman Empire who was, was a very you know broad empire, and it, it started to degenerate in the 1800s. But by 1840, that was an official mark of like, okay... We officially cannot defend ourselves anymore. So they had this treaty and, and, and you know, this agreement. And so that officially marks a period of 391 years from when they judged the Roman Empire in 1449 to their inability to be basically to defend themselves anymore because they were having crumbling and civil war, just like Rome. You see the pattern that happens throughout history. And again, these times match perfectly with the Bible, which is just too uncanny. Now, the army of the 200, <clears throat> excuse me, the army of the 200 million, look, there's no army of 200 million ever going to happen. China's army right now, which has the largest standing army, is almost 3 million people. So this is a metaphorical picture of a very large army. We know that fire and brimstone are symbols of judgment. We know that from plenty of places like um, Sodom and Gomorrah, obviously that's that's one very famous example. But the colors of the Turkish uniforms, get this, they were red, which represents fire, they were blue, which represents jacinth and smoke, and yellow, which represents brimstone. Isn't that funny? That's exactly the uniforms that the uh, the sixth trumpet mentions of this army. They had red and blue or jacinth and yellow or brimstone, all symbols of judgment and all colors that the Turkish army wrote or wore. So it's just fascinating again how God brings these empires up, predicts them so you know who's behind them in the sense that who brings the power into the into the world so they can judge 
the previous powers, and then he lets them go and he judges them with other powers. And at the end, he judges everybody, which is just fascinating. But again, the heads of lions, ferocity, aggression, just like we saw with the locusts and the Muslim armies. Now, it's also said that the power of these things was in their mouth and in their tails. We know, again, that they had speed, they had mobility, devious tactics, but they also had what? They had guns. They had guns that tormented people and basically had their power. Remember, a second temple Jew is going to see something like a snake, right? A long snake with a mouth, or to us, it's a musket. So you're writing what you see and what you're shown because they didn't have guns in John's time. But they did have snakes and a snake with an open mouth. And again, all these things make total sense when you understand history. But that's the sixth trumpet. And if you look at Revelation 11, you have the seventh trumpet, which matches all the things we talked about with the flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, heavy hail. All these things match the seventh bowl, the seventh seal, the third woe. All these things are happening at the same time. So compare all this stuff to the previous things, and what do you get? Well, you get that we are <laughs> we are at the very end. Now, I want you to compare a couple things with these judgments and Babylon and the, judge, the judgments that were on Babylon. And one proof of that is that when Cyrus overthrew Babylon, what he did was very interesting. He dug up channels to redirect the Euphrates so that Babylon could be accessed. And they basically, the river dried up and then they invaded Babylon. And so the drying up of the Euphrates, and again, there's, there's some drying up of the Euphrates happening. Who knows if that's being manipulated or if that is part of these signs. But nevertheless, we know that the drying up of the river Euphrates symbolizes a drying up of support for Babylon the Great. We know that at the very end, Mystery Babylon gets devoured by the beast. The kings of the power, that they gave the power to this system, which we aren't there yet. The kings of the earth have not given their power to the papacy and to this Christian nationalist system. But when they do, they will regret it eventually because they'll realize they were wrong and they will turn on the beast and judge the beast. They will devour her. That's the judgment of the final beast. And, of course, Christ will come and judge everybody else. But, ultimately, it's there's a parallel here. Because you see, the river drying up is a parallel to what happened with Babylon. The physical before the spiritual. The physical Euphrates represented a lot of resource and life and vitality. What did Cyrus do? He diverted the river so that there's no more life pouring into Babylon. So he could invade it. Physically, well, we know that the end represents that support for Babylon, the system, mystery Babylon, will dry up. People will realize that they've been deceived and turn on her and judge her with fire and with destruction. How that's going to happen, I don't know. But the point is that there's a lot of parallels between these things in a spiritual way. So, we... We can't get too dogmatic about seeing, oh my gosh, the, the Euphrates is drying up. That's a physical thing that's happening. Maybe the fallen angels are being released and all these videos that you see, some of them are fake even, right? Of, of recording supposedly of, of angel voices that are being released from. Look, 
These things are designed to deceive you. They really are. I hate to say it. They're designed to deceive you. They're designed to fool you into looking at the world from fleshly, physical perspectives. Not seeing the spiritual realities and realizing where you are in history. Because the whole point of this trumpets thing and seals thing is to know where am I in history. First off, the trumpets prove that God is just and he's showing that he's going to cast judgment on every one of these powers, and he has. That explains our history. And we are at the very end of history. We're in between the sixth and seventh seal. We're in the final church. We're in between the sixth and seventh trumpet. We haven't started the bowls yet, so we're we're coming up, right? Like I said, in our generation, we, we can probably expect to see the mark of the beast. And if you don't know what that is, check out the mark of the beast episode. But the trumpets were judgments from the points of the pagans, from the points of the wicked, from the points of unbelievers. You layer that on top of everything else, and you can see how basically it fits. We looked at that in the uh, end times timeline. And of course, you had different people who were judged. You had the Jews first, you had Rome, then you had basically the papacy was judged, right, by the power that they created, which was Islam, and then Islam was finally judged and the Ottoman Empire was destroyed, and, you know, no more of that. So now you're waiting on this new power. Remember, how does this fit to the rest of human history? Well, in 1798, you had the French Revolution, and then you had the second beast, which was America. So the Ottoman Empire, around the time that the Ottoman Empire started to crumble as a world power, you had what? You had the second beast rise up. And then you had the French Revolution, which said, oh, the first beast is basically gone. The Pope is, the papacy is no more. That was the wound. And that wound healed in 1929 with the Lateran Pact. Meanwhile, America has been the world power ever since. So you had a shift of power in the, for this final stage of events that's happening. And that final stage is what? That final stage is that the second beast will create an image to the beast where people will be deceived into worshiping it so that the first beast is glorified. What does that mean? Well, we looked at that in the image of the beast episode. An image is a representation. It's a representation of something else. So if you put it all together, it means that this system, this beast, the second beast, which is the United States, will create an image which is a representation of the first system that was on the earth for 1260 years that ruled with an iron fist despite all of those judgments. It ruled with an iron fist, and that was the papacy. What was the papacy? The papacy was a union of church and state. It was a Christian nationalist system with a compromised theology that demanded worship. That's what's happening on the horizon. If you think I'm crazy, please go check out the previous episodes. Look at the image of the beast. Learn who Mystery Babylon is. Look at the documentation there. Look at the episode titled Dark to Light. Brilliant stuff there. Not that I'm brilliant. I'm saying there's brilliant evidence that you can look at that is proof beyond a shadow of a doubt what's going on. Look at the counterfeit spirit episode. where We talk about all the things that are happening in the United States to create a counterfeit spirit that's going to deceive people into ecumenism, into union with the beast, into one world religion, into this idea that Christianity should be an institution and Christian nationalism, it's all coming on the horizon. The, the big bad boogeyman of communism and globalism, that's not the enemy. The deep state is not the enemy. The enemy is going to be a false light, 
a false system, a false golden age, a Christian nationalist system that's going to demand worship. That's what the Bible predicts, and that's on the horizon because that is going to be started here in the United States, and it's going to be exported everywhere else. This is the final phase. We've been through the six trumpets. The Ottoman Empire fell in 1920. That's also when the wound was healed by the Lateran Pact, 1929. Do you see how these things overlap so interestingly? We're now in the final phase where Mystery Babylon is being constructed in the sense of the image of the beast. And when the image of the beast is done and everybody starts adopting this Christian nationalist system, who is going to be at the head of that? It's going to be the Pope. The kings of the earth will have a framework to give their power to the beast. And it will be just like it was for 1260 years with the Pope ruling over the entire world through various city-states or, you know, nation-states that are all Christian nationalists and they pay homage to the beast. I mean, it sounds... It sounds so crazy, but if you know your history, it's not a surprise. It really isn't. So, I hope you've learned something today, and I hope you see the greater picture. Don't be dogmatic about these times. But also, don't be fooled by all these things telling you that the trumpets haven't happened, and then aliens are going to come out of a pit and, you know, kill people for five months. I mean, this is just scare tactics designed to traumatize you so that you don't think logically and spiritually. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. Okay, so ultimately, we have to remember that. None of these things that you read in the book of Revelation should scare you. In fact, they should inspire you that God is the one in control, that there's a brilliant future on the horizon, and there's something terribly exciting to look forward to, which is the resurrection, eternal life, and all of this finally being over. So, until next time... God bless. We'll see you soon. We have a couple more episodes, probably two or three max to do with this series. I hope you have enjoyed this. Hope it's been edifying for you. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me or let me know in the comments and I will see you next time. 